This is A New Angle, a show about cool people doing awesome things in and around Montana. I'm your host, Justin Angle. This show is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. Hey folks, welcome back. I'm excited today to be joined by Dr. Kimiko Barrett of Headwaters Economics. Kimmy is the lead wildfire and natural hazard researcher at Headwaters, where she also leads their community planning assistance for wildfire program. This isn't a physics problem. We know the physics. We know how wildfire behaves. We know the risks. We know the trends. This is a social science question. She grew up in Bozeman, attended Montana State University, and earned her PhD in forestry from right here at the University of Montana. We had an amazing conversation about the wildland urban interface that some of you might have heard parts of on Fireline. And I'm excited to have Kimmy back to a new angle for a longer form treatment of some of those topics today. Kimmy, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Justin. Excited to be here as well. Yeah. So tell us about Headwaters and what space do you fit in here? Yeah, so Headwaters Economics is a nonpartisan research independent group. Uh, we're, you know, analogous somewhat to a think tank. We are based in Bozeman, Montana, but we also have staff up in Helena. And then most recently, one of our colleagues moved to Missoula as well. So we're kind of around the western part of the state, even though we're a relatively small team of 10 people. And we are really unique in that we're divided roughly in half in, in terms of a research effort and, and colleague group, and then alternatively, a very tech savvy, data intensive group of, of experts. And so we complement each other really well in that the four of us who consider ourselves researchers and we each lead our own kind of area or field of expertise. So I'm wildfire. We have a colleague who does flood work. We have another colleague who does recreational and demographic uh, public lands issues, and then another colleague who does energy work. And so we are heavily supported and, and work very closely with a tech team that helps us dig through all the data out there, helps us interpret it, put it into online interactives and web formats and make it much more digestible to different audiences that we're working with. And that's really kind of where Headwaters Economics has excelled, is taking existing data and research and essentially repackaging it for broad consumerism to different audiences and different groups of people that we're talking to. So from the policymaker up to, you know, federal legislation uh, and then down to local decision makers and elected officials. So it's very broad, um, but we work very closely again with both a kind of communications outreach side as well as a research and science piece. Sure. So talk a little bit about the consumers of your research. You mentioned a few of them, policymakers, managers, et cetera. Like what purpose is your research in general serving? How is it advancing the governance of, of our state and region and, and so forth? We always start with an audience in mind when we do any sort of product or deliverable or research tool on our end is who are we trying to talk to? You know, say I have a wildfire piece, an article that I've been working on. Am I writing that for to, to change legislation and policy or am I writing it for a city planning department who needs to think about regulations? And so because of that broad spectrum of audience, we really tailor the product to specifically speak to that person. And so our audiences are very broad because we work at the community level. That's one part of it. But then alternatively, we use what directly comes out of that community to inform policy at the federal level. And so I, I feel like what I say is we speak 
two languages because we work at that community scale. We're all trained as academics, and yet we work very closely with policymakers as well. So it's multiple scales, multiple audiences, um, and therefore we have multiple products based off of, again, who we're talking to. So we always say our mantra is, who are you talking to? What are you trying to say? How does that person need to say it or hear it? And then who needs to be the person to say it? So who is the messenger of what you're saying? Because sometimes it's me, but sometimes it, it comes better if I train a planning director and he's the one who talks to the elected official. So, you know, we use those four pillars of communication to package any kind of product or research effort we do. So let's talk about the, the wildland urban interface or WUI. I mean, that's that's a term that gets used a lot. I think in our last conversation, you explained why, you know, it's it's actually a, a term and a framework or a way of looking at development in the West that, that you all don't really use as much anymore. How do you think about development in the West? Yes, the wildland urban interface, the WUI, you know, it's an acronym that's evolved Oh, at least over 20 years. And for a long time, it was just considered wildland urban, and then it became urban wildland. And, you know, because it came out of the federal level, you always have to have an acronym to shortcut everything. And so, you know, the wildland urban interface, you know, it designates the area where the unbuilt landscape, wildland vegetation, meets and intermingles with the built environment. And by that, we're talking about development, human presence human dimensions of landscape. And so it defines this kind of geographic region, particularly in the American West, that because it is this fusion of both the unbuilt and built environment is highly prone to wildfire. Uh, And that's either through forests and timber or through grassland and shrubland. Either way, it's still considered a wildland urban interface. Um, And so we use at Headwaters Economics wildfire prone lands because it in the context of community wildfire risk, it means the same thing and it isn't a nasty acronym and it gets right to the point. Having said that, it is an area that is increasingly not only exhibiting wildfire risks and behavior, but is also the fastest growing land use type in the country. Currently, as of 2010, so data that's already 10 years outdated, one in every three homes is now situated in these wildfire prone lands, or 34%. So that accounts for you know tens and tens of millions of households that are situated in areas that we know have experienced and are going to experience a wildfire. Uh, and so it's an area of extreme concern, and it's where growth is being directed, which is only going to be exacerbated by the pandemic and ex-urban exodus that we're seeing. And some of the reasons why growth is being directed in those areas, they're, they're not quite what you think. I mean, there's a lot of rich people, you know, moving up into the hills to get fancy views, but that's not all of it. It's the, the, the development in the WUI is fairly widely distributed, right? It is distributed and it, it's heterogeneous, not just in terms of, of state demographics and and topographical characteristics, but across the entire West, it's very, very different. And so what the wildfire risks are in, say, California and who is being most impacted vary quite a bit when you look at the risks here in Montana and who is being impacted. And that can vary in terms of what the risk is in Gallatin County in contrast to what the risk is in Powell County. So, yeah, it is. It's very diverse. And therefore, the solutions and the approaches to address that risk while there are, you know, a, a set of universal tools that can be applied, they also have to be very nuanced when you actually implement them on the ground, because these challenges tend to be, you know, very diverse uh, and localized in the sense that they happen either at that 
county or kind of multi-county scale, the approaches therefore must meet that kind of nuance. Um, and so what works in one county to reduce wildfire risk, it may not necessarily be the same measures that you would want to apply in another county or you know, even larger at a different state. Um, so you have to consider that when you're talking about wildfire risk and the complexity that goes behind some of the solutions and approaches to it. So let's maybe start with some of you mentioned at the head of that answer that some of the you know risk mitigation efforts that we can make are universal. Let's maybe start with some of those and then we can get more into that nuance as sure. we move forward. While we always say, you know, there is no single silver bullet, we will have to address wildfire risks with everything we have at our disposal. We also push the idea that for too long, the federal level and down to the state level, and, and you're seeing it manifest at the local scale as well, has focused very heavily on the landscape resiliency piece or the forest treatment piece. And that is managing and essentially trying to domesticate the wildfire issue in terms of how you can control the forests and plan the forest. And the fire adapted community piece is kind of referenced as an afterthought. And so what we're saying is, well, no, you can't really, they have to work in tandem with one another. You can't talk about reducing community wildfire risk without bringing in the community and the urban within the wildland urban interface. You have to address this more holistically. And so we, we can't continue to just treat our forests and log our way out of some of these challenges. We're going to have to start thinking very deliberately about that human dimension side as well. And so in that light, there are a number of things that can be done at that community scale to help address and mitigate wildfire risk. And that's when it starts to become a little bit more nuanced when you bring it down to, you know, more of that county or community level of implementation. Yeah. I mean, what are some of the things we're talking about that a community can do to become more wildfire adapted? What does that even look like? You know, we know wildfires are inevitable. I mean, indigenous tribes have known this their entire existence. And we know that they're also increasing in terms of both severity and frequency. And that is largely driven by, by climate change and decades and decades of fuel suppression. And so we understand that given these increasing risks, homeowners can start to do things to their structure and their property to, to live alongside that inevitability. And really this comes from the great work of Dr. Jack Cohen, who is based in Missoula. He's formerly with the Forest Service and worked at the Missoula Fire Science Lab. And his seminal work that came out the late 80s uh, and into the 90s that looked at the home ignition zone has really pioneered our understanding and the research behind the process of home ignition. In other words, how does a home burn down in the first place? So when you start taking Jack's work and looking at it and, and his thesis, it's arguing that we need to shift our understanding of how a wildfire disaster occurs in the first place. What is that sequence of events that leads to an urban conflagration? And so when you break that down, the big fallacy that occurs is people, media, uh, homeowners, elected officials, society at large, always envisions it's a massive wildfire front or it's this kind of wave of flames that comes right. down a mountainside and engulfs a community. But the reality is, is that 90% of home loss during an, a wildfire event, an urban conflagration, is a result of embers that fly one to two miles ahead of that wildfire front. And if that ember, that little matchstick, that ball of flame lands on any flammable surface, it can grow in intensity and size to burn and threaten a structure. And so, you know, think about a campfire and all those embers that shoot out of a campfire or, you know, even better, think about what a home is in the first place, which is, you know, I always say the analogy is you're taking 
a bunch of gasoline, petroleum based products, wrapping it entirely of wood and then placing it in a very dry, dead forest. And so when those little fireballs, thousands and thousands of them, uh, an entire storm of embers come showering over your home and your property, think about what is flammable. And, and that comes down to the dead debris in your gutters or what your roof is made out of. If, if you have wood shingles on it, if your deck is made of wood, what is on the deck? Did you put your, you know, your firewood? Is it stored on top of the deck or is it under the deck? Uh, what's your, you know, is what's furniture made out of? It's usually wicker uh, with, you know, petroleum based cushions on top of it. And you start to think and account for all of these little surfaces, you know, the bark mulch around your home, the junipers up against the home, all these little pieces that collectively can make your home very, very vulnerable to those embers. And so if it only takes one little ember to grow large enough, and if, if your home isn't effectively suppressed at that point, it can lead to these, you know, that home igniting. And then the radiant heat from that structure is going to be big enough and intense enough that it can threaten neighboring homes as well. And so we always say when you're dealing at that community scale, looking at the built environment, really what you're trying to do is protect homes from those ignition vulnerabilities from embers. Uh, and so there's ignition resistant techniques and materials you can start to use. We have the science, we know how to do, we know how to build a wildfire resistant home. And now we just need to start actually implementing and adopting those practices on a broader scale. Yeah. And what do we know about how to make progress there? I mean, the social science piece of, you know, getting individual homeowners to adopt some of these things, getting, you know, cause there's a collective action problem as you referenced there as well. And then some of this probably has to be, enforced through building codes and policy. What's the sort of collection of tools we have to try to make these changes happen? So we know that voluntary homeowner measures don't work. Right. Only in the in light of, you know, we, we've had great educational programs out there for quite a while now. Firewise, Ready, Set, Go, a lot of them backed by fire associations. And they are outstanding in terms of getting neighbors and individual communities to understand and recognize the risk and then to take mitigation measures on their property, but it's voluntary. And so only, you know, one homeowner can do everything appropriate in, in light of wildfire, you know, mitigation measures, they can do defensible space, they can use the appropriate building products and materials in the home. But if their neighbor doesn't do anything, then their home is still threatened, again, due to that radiant heat that comes off of a home once it starts burning. Therefore, you have to have an entire neighborhood compelled to take those mitigation measures. And the only mechanism we have in place to enforce that kind of compliance comes down to the regulatory framework. And that is the land use planning piece. That is thinking about building codes, regulations, ordinances, covenants, other tools and measures within the land use planning toolkit that can actually incorporate and integrate wildfire mitigation into the development framework. And so when you're talking about proposed new developments, what is it that needs to be incorporated into the vision of that, that development to make it more wildfire resistant? And a lot of that does come down to the building products and materials used in the home. So looking at things like what is the decking material com you know, composed of? What's that immediate landscaping or that five foot perimeter around the home contain? Are you allowing bark mulch, for example, or are you going to require rock mulch? Um, some communities require that the first 10 feet of a fence isn't made of wood because that is going to be like a wick during a wildfire and, and lead it directly to a home. Things along these lines that actually 
look at the construction design and materials within the structure itself. And then the property is the broader vegetation management piece. You know, unfortunately, the metaphor that has really come to light to illustrate this best is when you look at the, the COVID and the mask compliance, we know that one person wearing a mask is not nearly as effective as the entire community wearing a mask in reducing COVID. And it's similar, you know, with wildfire spread. One homeowner alone is not going to achieve community risk reduction. It does require the entire neighborhood. Yeah, and let's talk about, you know, sort of the uh, just variation in these communities. I mean, I think when, when people think of the WUI and in particular new building in the WUI, they think often, you know, fancy homes up on a mountainside. And often those are the sorts of people that can, you know, afford it's new construction and they can afford these sorts of um, building techniques. But a lot of times the WUI isn't that wealthy um, and doesn't have that kind of resources, or maybe it's old homes, or maybe it's outside of, you know, city um, governance and, and other things, uh, or people that can't afford those sorts of things. So talk about how just the variation with, with, within the WUI and, and where some of these places are some of the places where these sorts of investments in homes are really difficult to make happen. Like you said, there are certain locations where it's high wildfire likelihood and and hazard. And then you also have homeowners that are intentionally building in those locations because they want the amenity or the recreational access or the scenic views. You know, any of those attributes that kind of come along with rural locations and, and living in those areas. And for those homeowners, there is this whole understanding, you know, they this is one of several homes they likely own. And they... If here in Montana, for example, if their architect is told that they just have to use these building products, that it's it's not a question of A and B, it's you just have A and and this is the set of different building products that you can meet to, you know, in in this A column, that homeowner is not going to question. They're not going to push back because they're likely coming from a place like California where they do have to already comply with those kind of building requirements. And on the other end of that, you have a a big challenge, as you referenced in your question, about housing affordability and homeowners that are situated in wildfire-prone lands that do not have that level of disposable income to pick and choose against a wildfire-resistant home or not. And in that situation, I, I strongly believe that there is a role for the federal government to provide subsidies to help offset some of those costs. We've done it with energy before, and, and I think if we were to apply a similar model for homeowners that are at high risk um, and retrofitting some of those structures, as has been done in California and increasingly proposed for some of these places that are experiencing wildfire disasters, that is one step in trying to address this and and seek to to not put all of the blame on the homeowner themselves, particularly when you bring in some of the questions regarding housing affordability and and where else are these people supposed to live if if they can't live in their home that they've had for many, many years, or if they do need new homes and there's a, a housing pressure in the community where else is development supposed to go? We'll be back to our conversation with Kimmy Barrett of Headwaters Economics after this short break. A New Angle is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and UM's College of Business. Access to capital, broadband, and education are three ingredients any community needs for success. Build it, bike it, ski it, hike it. Come be a part of the process for creating a new and better Marshall Mountain as the city embarks on a journey to bring the beloved Missoula Mountain into public ownership. 
Parks and Recreation will host a community celebration at Marshall Mountain on September 12th from 1 to 4 p.m. Residents will have a chance to tour the site and learn how to become involved with the planning for the future Marshall Mountain Recreation Area. Check it out. Hey, this is Mark Moss from Tell Us Something, and you're listening to A New Angle. Welcome back to A New Angle. I'm speaking with Dr. Kimmy Barrett of Headwaters Economics about how citizens and policymakers must think differently about wildfire. In our previous conversation, we talked a little bit about moral hazard and some of the municipalities in these wildfire-prone zones rely so much on property taxes, for example. So when homes burn down, there's like a perverse incentive to rebuild the home right there, regardless of whether or not it's a smart idea to build on that piece of land. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, even since our last conversation, Justin, I've been reading this great piece by the author is Patrick Bayless. He's an economist who was formerly with Stanford. Uh, and he wrote a report that looks at the moral hazard and wildfire suppression. And in the report, he talks about this, this concept of moral hazard. So to begin with, let's define that. That is this idea that decision makers or individuals, you in your own position, perhaps can agree to something where you are not going to be responsible for bearing the consequence of that outcome or that decision. You know, for well over 100 years, we have a system in place where fire protection services are public good. It's a public service. It is provided and and paid for by the federal government and by taxpayers. So local governments, again, are not going to have to pay for a vast majority of wildfire protection or also known as suppression costs when they approve of any new development. Um, and so, you know, they get increased property revenue and they don't have to pay the bill for firefighting. So what is in it for them? Why would they want to ban or prohibit development in an area that they know is likely to burn when all that's going to do is increase their tax revenue? So that's what we talk about with a moral hazard is they're able to approve those new developments because they're not going to actually bear the cost of protecting those developments when it comes to a wildfire. And so until that very complex, but often overlooked fiscal mechanism is addressed, it's going to be hard to incentivize local governments to take the action that is needed. And so what Patrick Bayless, you know, points out in his report so well is, you know, we might have to look at alternative policies that might not be received very well because it is going to start shifting some of that responsibility and accountability to local governments, perhaps homeowners, insurance companies, and others who, you know, who have up to this point not had to, you know, bear a lot of responsibility for the actual suppression costs. Um, and I think it's important to note, though, that what we're talking about is actual firefighting costs or the costs related to containing and extinguishing a wildfire. That's known as suppression. We're not talking about the long term expenditures that come out many months and years following a wildfire. For example, watershed rehabilitation or infrastructure repairs, hillside stabilization, all these other impacts that come out as a result of wildfire. Those costs, in fact, are largely borne at a local scale but they're very often overlooked in terms of how well connected they are to a wildfire event. You know, it's a complex problem, but it's so thorny. In our remaining time, Kimmy, like how do we make progress? What gives you hope? Who's doing this well? You know, I believe very adamantly that change is going to come from the community scale. I don't think it's fair and I don't think it's going to be an effective use of our time to rely on the federal government 
or the insurance companies for that matter, to do something about this. So when you're talking about the anticipatory planning of living alongside the inevitability of wildfire, that change is going to come from the community scale because it's communities that have either experienced wildfire very recently or have seen their neighbors go through a wildfire. And they realize that they're going to have to start taking that action very locally in order to get ahead of this train. Um, and there's a lot of great examples out there of communities who have done this well. Boulder County, Colorado, they have a great wildfire partners program that you know merges the, the private and the public sector to address wildfire mitigation at that parcel and homeowner scale. The city of Austin has just passed a really great building code to address wildfire hazard and new developments in wildfire prone areas. Um, California, as I said, is you know, always kind of leading the efforts here in Montana. Missoula County is doing great work in terms of their collaborations and partnerships, which is hard in a, in a state that has been so anti-regulatory in how its infrastructure and its, its legislative mechanisms have been adopted and put into place. So Missoula is doing great work. Park County, where I live here in Livingston, is also doing really good work and having interesting conversations. Gallatin County. So it is happening kind of piecemeal across the country. And, and collectively, there's some really great examples out there. Not as many as obviously we, we need to have, but it's some momentum. Um, and I think people are recognizing, as with all of these natural hazards, that they're only gaining in severity and scope and that we need to start thinking about this rather than you know, retroactively, we need to think of it again in an anticipatory lens. But then the thing I always like to talk about, and I always try and leave on an optimistic note because it comes down from a great wildfire historian named Steve Pine. You know, he's, a, he's done a, a ton of research on history of, of the 1910 great wildfires, but prior to that kind of the settlement and the progression of, of kind of the colonial movement across the country. And he talks about in the late 19th century and into the early 20th century, as we progressed westward, we built entire cities and urban areas made of wood that continually burned down repeatedly. The Chicago and the Peshtigo fire of 1871, later the 1906 fire of San Francisco, where these cities didn't burn down just once, but multiple times from structural ignitions. The Peshtigo fire, for example, killed 1,700 people. Imagine an event nowadays where 1,700 people perished in one natural hazard. And so after those events happened, we as a society collectively decided to stop building our cities to burn down. So we replaced our wooden boardwalks with cement and non-flammable surfaces. We stopped using sawdust for insulation. We put in fire alarms and evacuation systems and hydrants, and we started very thoughtfully designing our urban areas with fire in mind. And we don't see those, those kind of devastating disasters anymore because of those early efforts and that thoughtful process and thinking that went in at that time. So Steve Pine always says, you know, we've solved this problem before from an urban planning perspective. If you apply those same principles into the wildland, we can solve it again. And, and we have the science, we have the materials, we have the technology and the research to know how to build smarter, safer homes in wildfire prone lands. If you look at it that way, it simplifies the problem. And this isn't a physics problem. We know the physics. We know how wildfire behaves. We know the risks. We know the trends. This is a social science question. And so once we get over that, that societal hump and the inertia with how we perceive wildfire, then I think it opens up a lot of opportunity to think about how we can live alongside it. Indeed, Kimmy, I think that's a, a, a wonderful way to kind of close out. 
It is a social science problem, although that I don't know if that necessarily makes me more confident or less confident that we can solve it again. <laughs> but knowing that we solved it once in a different context, you know, is a reason to have optimism about the future. Yes. Well, we have to have something, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's better than the doing? alternative. So, Kimmy, this has been great. How can people who want to learn more about you and Headwaters find you online? Yeah, uh, headwateseconomics.org. It's our website. And uh, if you go to the team bio, I'm listed there as well as my colleagues. And I'm always happy to entertain questions, respond to phone calls, interviews, whatever is helpful to, to get the word out and spread the love. Awesome. Well, thanks for sharing the love with us. And uh, yeah, keep pumping out that important research. We need it. Will do, Justin. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a generous gift from University of Montana alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. A New Angle is presented by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. With additional support from Consolidated Electrical Distributors, Drum Coffee, and Montana Public Radio. AJ Williams is our producer. BTO, Jeff Ament, and John Wicks made our music. Editing by Nick Mott. And Jeff Meese is our master of all things sound. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.